series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee. Our guest in this episode is Takaki Komeyama, professor at the University of California, San Diego, in the Department of Neurosciences and in the Neurobiology section of the Center for Neurocircuits and Behavior. The following episode was recorded in October 2014, but never broadcast. We wanted to bring this back from our archives and present it to you now because it's a great interview. In this interview, we talk about the anatomy of the sense of smell, baseball, and neural ensembles in motor cortex during learning. Please enjoy. We're here with Dr. Takaki Komiyama, a professor at UC San Diego studying systems neuroscience. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Komiyama. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So usually we like to start with your background. And we noticed that your lab website states that you grew up in Tokyo playing baseball. And that sounds like kind of an interesting start. So could you tell us how you went from being um, a childhood baseball player to an adulthood in science? And uh, at what point did you become interested in neuroscience? Well, let's see. I, I can't say those two are necessarily connected. <laughs> well, when I was small, let's say five or six, I was convinced that I would be a professional baseball player. Uh-huh. Uh, I I was convinced I would devote my life to baseball. <laughs> uh, at some point, uh, I realized that that was hard to achieve. I, <laughs> I realized if I wasn't, you know, way better than all of my teammates and, and other, other uh, kids, then it's unlikely that I would be able to become a, a professional baseball player. And uh, that was a pretty abrupt realization. Mm. And that's when, you know, baseball became a hobby rather than a career goal. <laughs> and I started looking at other things. This is all, you know, when I was probably in the elementary school. <laughs> okay. Do you still play today? I do, actually. Yeah. Recreational softball you know, oh. once a week. <laughs> well, that's pretty That's pretty awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy that. <laughs> Um, and so you actually did your undergraduate at the University of Tokyo, is that right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and I know Japan has its own, uh, a big legion of actually very prominent developmental biologists itself. Um, did you do any research when you were an undergraduate, or how did you get interested in science there? Uh, I did do research. Let's see. So, well, I grew up in an academic family. My, mm-hmm. Both my parents are professors, so mm-hmm. you know, science was something that was not unnatural to me, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, uh, it was a career that I could imagine myself pursuing. What professors are there? So my father was a chemical engineer, mm-hmm. and my mother was in education. Mm-hmm. So not in biology, yeah. but uh, academics. Uh-huh. And I did do research at the University of Tokyo in Professor Hitoshi Sakano's lab. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know that word. <laughs> well, you know the name? Uh, yeah, totally. a lot of olfactory <laughs> development. Is that right? That's right, yeah. yeah. So I, I worked on the project looking at the development at development of the olfactory system in mice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At that time, did he have... A, a, I know he uses a lot of these genetic uh, knock-in, knock-out mice. Oh, not really. More like labeled lines. Was he doing all of that work at the time you were there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was um, being set up and... I think they were publishing the first set of studies using that uh, that line of approaches. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was a very exciting time. Yeah. Did you come to the U.S. and uh, was there any uh, culture shock when you came here uh, for graduate school? <laughs> um, so I came to the U.S. right after college. So I came to Stanford for grad school, uh, mm-hmm. where you guys are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Culture shock. I wouldn't say there was really a culture shock. 
I had been to the U.S. on several occasions. I spent a couple of summers in college mm. taking, taking classes at universities or doing research in a lab. Mm-hmm. So that was not a completely new thing to me. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say there was a big cultural shock. But, okay. but there was definitely a, you know, some differences in the way science was done. What are some of those differences? Yeah, I, I think the main thing I notice is that I think people are more free to discuss ideas in the U.S. regardless of where you are in the hierarchy, whether you're a student, a mm-hmm. postdoc, uh, uh, PI. So I, yeah. I definitely enjoyed that uh, more free environment. Mm-hmm. And, and where else had you, did you visit when you were here in college? I spent a summer at Purdue University. Mm-hmm. I think I was a sophomore in college. Mm-hmm. I worked in the lab, chemical engineering labs, mm-hmm. um, my father's friend or colleague. So that was my first real uh, lab experience. And so as you mentioned, you're a Stanford uh, Neuroscience Program alum. So you did your graduate work here at Stanford Leach and Lowe, who's actually um, a lot like the Sakana Lab does a lot of genetic labeling of lines to look at development um, at the time, probably in, mostly in flies, although now he's definitely in mice. And you were working on development of olfactory neuron targeting, um, which is kind of a classic matching puzzle for developmental biologists. Um, could you describe for us what that puzzle is and perhaps maybe like an order of magnitude what that problem is? Uh-huh. So... Yeah, like you say, it is exactly a matching puzzle, uh, matching 50 classes of presynaptic neurons and 50 classes of postsynaptic neurons. It was a one-to-one or 50-to-50 matching. So how, how the system does that during development was the question that we asked, we studied while I was a grad student there. Mm-hmm. And in particular, you're doing a lot of work on ACJ6, which is a specific transcription factor that's, uh, I guess it's expressed both in the olfactory receptor neurons as well as um, it's kind of the second order neurons, which are the projection neurons in the olfactory system. And actually, before maybe we go into some of the specific findings, why why were you intrigued by this matching puzzle? Why did you actually join Leachin's lab? Was it influenced by your undergraduate work or? Uh, Let's see. So, yeah, that's an interesting question. So, it sounds like uh, you know natural transition from my undergrad research to uh, my PhD uh, mm-hmm. in the same system from uh, in the olfactory system, but from my uh, mice to flies. Mm-hmm. But it was actually not uh, designed to be that way. Mm-hmm. One of the main reasons I went to Stanford was because I was really interested in Ben Barris's lab. Ah. And during my interviews, I asked Ben if I could rotate in his lab. He promised me a rotation. <laughs> when, I, when I finally arrived at Stanford and asked for a rotation in his lab, he, um, he just told me that his lab was full and he wasn't taking rotation students. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was uh, mildly uh, devastated. <laughs> then started looking into other labs and some senior students uh, recommended that I look into Li Chen's lab, and so I went to speak with him, and then I really fell in love with the system that he worked on and the approaches that he took, so it went from there. It was interesting because I, when I first went to Stanford, I remember very clearly saying that I would only work on, only consider working on vertebrates. 
I will never work on invertebrates. So, um, the conviction didn't last for more than a few weeks. I feel like that's a common story that's a common of a turn of events. Yeah, yeah. What initially drew you to Ben's lab, out of curiosity? So I had read a few papers that he had published around that time. I think it was you know, around 99, 2000, yeah. where he was introducing the idea that synapse formation and maintenance are crucially regulated by glial cells. Yeah. That, I, I thought that was really interesting and unique, and so I really wanted to work on that. <laughs> that is a really interesting problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I never got to work on that. <laughs> maybe, maybe later on, <laughs> late career change. Well, possibly, possibly. possibly. <laughs> Systems level glia. Um, <laughs> anyway, so back to what you were, you ended up working on in Lee Chin's Law, which is this matching problem. And you're mm-hmm. working a lot of uh, on the specific transcription factor, ACJ6, uh, among other molecules. Um, and I was reading one of these papers, and I found it really interesting. You found that it had both a cell autonomous as well as a non-cell autonomous role. Maybe you can explain a little bit for those listeners who may be naive about that, what that is. But basically, using some of the trademark uh, low lab genetic techniques, you found this. And I wanted to ask, first of all, what exactly was this finding? And were you surprised to find that um, maybe as with much of biology, the outcome of these experiments was kind of between two different modes? And not only that, but, you know, regulated by one molecule doing two different things. Let's see. So... You know, I haven't really thought about this problem for (laughs) eight years or so. uh, Mm -hmm. So... The finding was that when we looked at the um, axon targeting specificity of mm. these olfactory sensory neurons, when, as you mentioned, we used uh, mosaic analysis to make some of these neurons, not all of these neurons, mutant for this transcription factor, ACJ6, what we found was that depending on the class of sensory neurons, some neurons had defects in axon targeting when they when they lacked ACJ6, and other classes of neurons have defects, whether or not they actually lacked ACJ6 or not. So the latter was really interesting, mm-hmm. because the latter class required that ACJ6 was present in the surrounding neurons, but not themselves. Mm-hmm. And so this, this showed that some neurons that require ACJ6 within themselves mm-hmm. uh, for targeting those neurons are used by other neurons as the cue for targeting. And were you surprised by this, or was this kind of intuitive to you guys at the time? I think it was a surprising finding to us and exciting. So, so you know, if you were an engineer and were told to solve this puzzle from, from ground zero, mm-hmm. then you would probably come up with a you know, simple solution. So the puzzle is a conceptually simple one where you have to match uh, 50 presynaptic to 50 postsynaptic. Mm-hmm. So the conceptually the simplest uh, solution to that is to come up with 50 combinations of keys and locks, mm-hmm. uh, and keeping each channel independent of each other. Mm-hmm. But what we find is that different channels depend on each other in a hierarchical manner. And mm-hmm. um, we speculated that that might have to do with the fact that. You know, biology is not like an engineer that tries to build something from scratch, but mm-hmm. uh, they keep adding on things to existing circuits, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what happens during evolution. Mm-hmm. So perhaps, you know, before they had 50 classes, they had fewer classes, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And as they added on new classes, it just made more sense to use the existing use the existing uh, circuits as the cues for the later developing or later evolving classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find that the olfactory receptor neurons express olfactory receptors that either in genetic sequence are more highly conserved or that you would think would be sort of evolutionarily older and more fundamental to the survival of the organism? That's a good question. Um, let's see. How do I think of that? So evolutional conservation would probably suggest some functions that are conserved across species. But unconserved receptors could be as important for the species based on the niche of those species, right? right. So fruit flies would need to detect odors that perhaps we humans don't need to detect. So the evolutional conservation may not necessarily relate to the importance of those receptors in that species. True. I don't know. I'm wondering if you maybe look at all. Uh, I don't know so much about fly phylogeny, but like related, you know, species or or even very distant, but, you know, inverted. But I I totally agree that so the speculation that I mentioned that the evolutionarily early ones were used by evolutionarily later, later classes that could have been, that that idea could have been pursued more uh, carefully based on based on evolutionary conservation or something like that. Yeah, that's something that we didn't do. Did you ever get around to at least within development, figuring out if the maybe early-born neurons drag the later-born neurons with them? Yeah, yeah, that's that's certainly what we did. So the the cell autonomous requirement happened more often Mm -hmm. in the neurons that target their axons first Mm -hmm. to the target. Mm -hmm. So that that we knew. Mm -hmm. Okay, very cool. Now, moving on to your postdoctoral work, starting in 2007, you moved to Genelia Farm to work with Dr. Uh, Carl Svoboda, who had the pleasure of interviewing in Neurotalk Season 2. Lately, mm-hmm. Dr. Svoboda has been doing a lot of very <laughs> cutting-edge techniques in order to study somatosensory cortex and associated motor cortex circuitry. You were actually using a lick-no-lick task in which mice made choices based on odors, so in a way getting back to your roots in the olfactory system, what caused you to make that leap into systems neuroscience from development, and what major question motivated this work on microcircuits involved in motor learning? Okay, so that was a layered uh, set of <laughs> questions. Yeah. Um, why, why switch from development to systems? So that was certainly a personal, a very personal decision, mm-hmm. and I took that very seriously, uh, thinking that you know that was uh, switching, going from graduate student to to a postdoc. That's uh, definitely a time, mm-hmm. one of the stages in your career when you can switch fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I decided to have an open mind, and you know perhaps if I stayed in similar fields as the field that I pursued in grad school. Uh, maybe I would have, I, I, I would be productive more quickly, mm-hmm. but I decided mm-hmm. not to keep that as a factor of my decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead I decided to pursue something that would excite me the most, uh, that I feel the most passionate about. So I decided to keep an open mind and two things became, uh, clear to me. So one was that, you know, the reason I, was really interested in neurobiology was because I was interested in how the brain works and how it 
mm. how it uh, makes us us how it how it gives us emotions feelings thoughts basically how yeah. it works and i decided that personally that's what i want to study as opposed to how the circuit develops during development of the of the organism so that's mm. one the other was that you know i spent 5 years of my life working on fruit flies at one point i decided that i wanted to work on an organism that i feel some relation to <laughs> and to me personally yeah. fruit flies were not one yeah. so i wanted to uh, i wanted to work on mammals i wanted to start to work on vertebrates this time for real <laughs> yeah. uh, keep the promise so, yeah <laughs> so those <laughs> so those two things made us switch over to systems neuroscience in, in mammals Did that answer part of your questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's cool that you followed your passion and um, and sort of knew that you might not be productive uh, as quickly, but felt that the motivation for asking the questions that were important to you was what guided you. Was that pretty challenging? The switch was the switch very challenging, or uh, I would say it was initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first time I got bit by mice. So <laughs> Yeah, that was a hard day. <laughs> so I really had to learn everything from scratch, and it, it was a good challenge, but it was certainly challenging. Mm-hmm. So, what was the specific question that motivated this 2010 paper with you and um, and Carl Svoboda? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe backing up a little bit, the motivation, the initial motivation for the study was uh, somewhat technical. In that, you know, I I think we saw a gap in systems neuroscience back then it was a quite naive view i have to admit but we thought we saw a gap in that a lot of behavioral neurophysiology was done by recording from one or a couple neurons at a time which can be recorded for maybe you know 20 30 minutes and when you think about how you function and how you especially learn you know that or you have the intuition that you those things are done by ensembles of neurons, large ensembles of neurons, and changes can happen over long periods of time. So we felt that it was very important to have a, have a paradigm where we can record the activity of large ensembles of neurons and perhaps for long periods of time. So that's, how, that's what motivated us to develop a paradigm where we can use two-photon calcium imaging, which was an emerging technique back then that was... Uh, beginning to be widely used in anesthetized animals yeah. and apply that in mice that are performing controlled behavioral tasks under the microscope. So that was a technical motivation for the study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know GCAMP was invented at Genelia, so that gave you uh, guys privileged access to be one of the first, first to use it. Okay, so that is a, a common misconception. So GCAMP was originally developed elsewhere, but the Genelia was uh, instrumental in improving that over the last years. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and did uh, you like, yeah, go ahead, sorry. But yeah, we certainly had access to the latest versions of GCAMP. Yeah. But actually, I did not use GCAMP in my postdoc work. I still, I was using bulk loading of a chemical dye. Mm-hmm. So that only allowed us to do acute recordings. Uh, for a few hours, mm-hmm. and it was not until uh, I started my own lab when I adopted genetically encoded calcium indicators for more chronic recordings. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. 
I think that's so interesting because uh, you say back then, but that wasn't actually, this was like maybe six or seven years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not that long ago, yeah. <laughs> like science is really rapidly uh, moving forward. I think that's a lot true. of people are interested in these ensemble recordings. Um, so in your specific work, you're actually looking at, uh, so you were doing these recordings and you were doing a behavior where the animal had a lick, no lick task. And you actually started looking at the motor areas that are associated with the tongue movements. Um, I think that, if that's correct. Um, and you were classifying them with respect to the mouse's responses and looking at how they change during learning. So I guess, you, did you find, can you describe for us the patterns that you found here? Uh-huh. So the question that we asked was what happens to the, to the motor cortex neurons that control, that presumably control licking behaviors mm-hmm. while the mouse learns to uh, lick in a controlled way in response mm-hmm. to certain cues. And the main finding that we made was that as the learning progressed, we saw an enhanced, increased uh, cooperative activation, synchronous activation of mm-hmm. functionally related neurons. So the neurons that are involved in licking, for example, those neurons began to show more synchronous activation, mm-hmm. which we interpreted as a possible emergence of heavy ensembles yeah. related to learning. And, huh. and, and it's funny because that's an idea that I feel like those heavy ensembles has been around for a long time. But at the time, did you feel like people had actually seen any evidence for this? Or did you feel like, you know, you guys were some of the first? Well, there, there were some, some precedences, but mm-hmm. uh, I, we, we felt that we were one of the first to really visualize that in real time mm-hmm. while, while the learning was occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should also mention that there were some caveats to this, right? So mm-hmm. uh, heavy ensembles, we like to think as direct direct synaptic connectivity among related neurons, but we mm-hmm. didn't show that. We, we saw that as functional connectivity mm-hmm. in the sense of um, synchronous, synchronous activation. Is, it, is that experiment very hard to do, actually showing that there's connection between these synchronous, synchronously activated neurons? Yeah, that is a, that is a million-dollar <laughs> question right now, and it is right. very hard to achieve, especially to... Uh, Especially to show the changes in those connections during mm-hmm. during short uh, during uh, timescales relevant to to learning. Yeah, we'll yeah. probably come back around to that when we talk about your more recent work. Although I don't know, maybe we'll see. <laughs> um, but I did want to ask something because I actually have a memory of Lee Chin once talking at a grad student lunch where we were asking, "Oh, why are you working on the olfactory bulb?" Um, and at the time, he said it was because he was actually forced to teach a class where he heard about it and realized this was a good system. I don't know if this is a true story or not or if I'm remembering it correctly. But for you, okay, so you went from going to development or working in development where you had this ideal system. Do you feel like, I guess you're, you're kind of more in motor areas than olfactory, but do you feel like um, you're, you're in an area that's very good for the kind of studies that you're interested in? Sorry, so is olfaction a good area to study? Is yeah, that- yeah. You know, in in both your studies, you chose um, you know olfaction to study uh, maybe sensory processing more generally, mm-hmm. and then this lick no lick task um, yeah. to study motor processing. Maybe the question is the selection of the the selection yeah. of the paradigm. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you know for obvious reasons there are advantages and disadvantages to use different uh, sensory modalities for your study. I, we figured that one of the advantages of using olfaction was that it was a very salient cue mm-hmm. for mice. Mm-hmm. So it's a very important sensation. Uh, it's a very important sensory modality for mice. And so we figured that the learning might be uh, faster 
with with olfactory cues, mm-hmm. um, which turned out to be true. I think the the like as I mentioned, our imaging back then was limited to a couple hours, so we wanted significant learning to occur during that time period, mm-hmm. and using olfaction that was possible. Mm-hmm. But there are disadvantages. For example, olfactory stimuli are very hard to control, and mm-hmm. knowing the precise timing of a stimulus delivery and stimulus onset and offset is very difficult. So for those reasons, we're also using other sensory modalities like auditory or visual cues mm-hmm. more recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 2010, you started your own lab in sunny San Diego and kept working with some of these uh, behavioral paradigms of motor learning, as well as doing some more work in olfaction. We might have had a small taste of this last year when your collaborator, Jeff Isaacson, visited us uh, to talk with us for NeuroTalk Season 2. But just in brief, in a 2012 paper by Cato et al., you found that wakefulness increased the activity of inhibitory granule cells and made mitral cell responses be encoded more sparsely. Uh, an additional paper from your lab in 2013 showed that parvalbumin interneurons seemed to play a very different role in modulating olfactory bulb activity by controlling the gain of mitral cell output uh, to sort of normalize activity of mitral cells, representing specific odors to the overall level of olfactory activity. So first, can you describe the anatomical connectivity of granule cells, and how does this differ from the connectivity of parvalbumin interneurons, and then maybe describe how both types of interneurons really help shape how olfactory information is processed. Sure. So so these two types of inhibitory interneurons, uh, granule cells and parvalbumin-expressing interneurons, they are both uh, local inhibitory neurons in the olfactory bulb that inhibit the principal neurons, mitral cells. So they're common. So the that is a common thing between the two classes of inhibitory neurons. Main difference that we find is that the connectivity between mitral cells and granule cells is quite sparse, while parvalbumin neurons seem to be connected pretty much with every neighboring mitral cell. So the connectivity is much more dense for parvalbumin neurons. And we think that this, this connectivity really uh, this connectivity difference really underlies the, their functional differences as well. So the parvalbumin cells are very broadly tuned. They respond to pretty much any odor. And so like you mentioned, we did some experiments supporting the idea that these neurons don't really care about the identity of odors, but they care more about the local activity level of the olfactory bulb, and perhaps they, are feed, they provide feedback in addition to keep the olfactory bulb level somewhat normalized. And for granule cells, we know less about their functions. We are doing active research to try to find out, but our favorite hypothesis is that since they are, well, let's back up. So we know that granule cells are much more narrowly tuned compared to parvalbumin cells. They, in terms of the odors they respond to. That's right. They are more selective in odor responses. Uh-huh. And based on that, and based on the fact that these uh, cells are renewed and renewed throughout adult, adulthood, they go through adult neurogenesis, and they are highly plastic, 
So these, based on these uh, characteristics, we like to think that granule cells might be involved in more odor-specific functions, perhaps involved in learning or association of odors with certain outcomes. So that's 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 an idea that we are pursuing currently. And if I'm remembering correctly from one of the, I think that 2012 paper that repeated presentation of an odor reduced the mitral cell activity corresponding to that odor that might be proceeding through granule cells. Is this learning just biasing the animal to sense novel odors, or is it more fine-tuning discrimination? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question. So we only need to speculate, right? So yeah. one one possibility is what you exactly mentioned, which is that so the novel odors, the odors that they haven't encountered in the last two months, mm-hmm. um, elicit very strong responses in the olfactory valve in the mitral cells. So that could be used as a novelty sensing mechanism. So if you smell something that you haven't smelled in a long time, then you may you better pay attention to that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's either uh, something really good or something really dangerous, mm-hmm. <laughs> likely. So, so that's one thing, and. Another thing is that, so when you encounter the same stimulus over and over, we find that the responses to those stimuli become sparser, uh, which might be, which might be more energetically efficient, metabolically more efficient. But if you, if you encounter the same stimulus over and over, then you may as well have a sparse and dedicated ensemble of cells to signal, signal that stimulus without Using too much of the remaining resources. Yeah, these are some of the ideas that yeah, that, that we like to that we like to push light. Mm-hmm. Are there for mice? Are there certain scents that are a priori already very sparsely encoded, or as opposed to others? Yeah, great question. So we we have thought about these questions. So uh, yeah, innately very important stimuli are they? You know. Are they more resistant to sparsening? Are they more stably represented? Or are they, like you mentioned, initially already sparsely represented? These are interesting questions. We haven't pursued that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I noticed in you know 2013 that the um, paper you published on the parvalbumin interneurons was it was co-submitted uh, or co-published with the paper by Kazanari <laughs> in Leachin's lab. So was that fun to sort of reunite with Leachin and uh, with tackling this, uh, <laughs> tackling this problem? Yeah, that was interesting to say the least. I don't know if you know, but Kazanari and I were college classmates as well. Uh, wow. We yeah. we worked in the same lab, Hitoshi Sakano's lab. Uh, so that's the first author of the co-submitted paper from Lee Chen's lab. Right. So it was a very, very interesting situation. So they uh, presented their work at a conference, and so that's when we knew that we were working on related stories. Mm-hmm. But knowing Lee Chen and Kazanari really well, we weren't particularly worried, and co-submission was a very easy and smooth process. I think we yeah. trusted each other, so that that kind of personal trust definitely helped us do what we did. Um, all right, and then just to do, we wanted to ask you about your most recent work, which kind of gets back very similarly to what you were doing in Carl's lab, um, looking at learning, although it sounds like you have plans to look at this um, in, in a more olfactory context. But um, going back to the motor cortex, you published a paper where you imaged populations of inhibitory and excitatory neurons for a much longer amount of time than I guess maybe you were able to previously, for two weeks during, like I said, motor cortex-dependent lever-pressing um, learning task. So I have a feeling that some of your findings might be what you're talking about, but if not, 
that, do you think you could just tell us a little bit about why you did that study and what was so, was so important about it? Sure. So the main question we wanted to ask in this in this study was whether the relationship between the motor cortex activity and the motor outputs mm-hmm. is stable or is it something that is shaped by learning. Mm-hmm. And previous work, well, we thought that a general, general idea was that the motor cortex was very close to the actual motor outputs and the relationship between its activity and, uh, and motor outputs is something that is uh, quite stable. Mm-hmm. But there, there hasn't been a lot of studies looking, actually looking at the activity patterns of the motor cortex throughout learning. So we thought that was an open question, and we decided to ask that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I should what, have said that a little better. Oh, no, no, that's, <laughs> that sounds good. Um, so basically, basically uh, you, you found a lot of patterns in terms of over the course of learning. Can you tell us what some of those patterns were? Uh-huh. Maybe I shouldn't get into too much detail there, though, because I will be, uh, that, that will be part oh, okay, of my Okay, all right. That's <laughs> what I suspected. Okay. okay. Cool. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the... the the bottom line is that we see major change in the relationship between motor cortex activity and, and motor outputs during mm-hmm. learning. Uh-huh. And we think we are beginning to understand how that happens in terms of the mechanisms underlying those changes. Mm-hmm. And so that is, that is something that we are actively pursuing. Okay, cool. So that will be I'll share with you some of well, the recent uh, findings. Yeah. <laughs> Tasty uh, preview of the talk. Yeah. So. <laughs> Is there anything else? You have to come about? to find out more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anything else we I'll be talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I will be sharing with you another study where we looked at the effect of learning on the activity of uh, primary sensory cortex, the primary mm-hmm. visual cortex, mm-hmm. and how uh, association learning really changes the mode of operation of the primary visual cortex. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's leave it at that. Okay, sounds good. So I think people will be excited to hear this. And then one maybe oh. uh, overall question, yeah, uh, sure. last overall question, is studying both sensory and motor systems. Have you noticed any differences in how cortex deals with processing sensory and motor information, especially as the animal gets more experienced with a particular sense or a particular motor output? Interesting. I think one main difference uh, that, that I think we find is the, the level of degeneracy. What I mean by that is, so in sensory areas, uh-huh. neurons tend to have more reproducible responses to the same sensory stimuli. Uh-huh. Okay, if you apply the same stimulus twice, then chances are that you get similar set of neurons activated. Right. And this... A uh, tight relationship between the external world and the neurons is not really observed in the motor cortex, at least the way we see it. Uh, the motor cortex neurons seem to respond much more, much less reliably. And uh-huh. uh, in other words, the activation pattern in the motor cortex seems to be quite degenerate in, with, rel- with regards to the motor outputs. With regards to the activation of muscles in motor uh, outputs. Okay. Correct. Or the kinematics of motor outputs. Yeah. yeah. 
Interesting. So those are different. That, that's the main difference that we think we find. But there are also a lot of similarities that we keep getting reminded of. One of which being that things, the, the activity of any area of the brain comes from, uh, arises from intricate interactions of various classes of neurons that have dedicated and unique functions, uh, both uh-huh. excitatory and inhibitory neurons. So that's a, that's a theme that we com- uh, keep coming back to mm-hmm. in different areas, in different contexts. Interesting. Very cool. Okay, well, thank you very much for that main portion of the interview. We're now just going to conclude with a couple of rapid-fire questions, uh, which are meant <laughs> to sort of be lighthearted and just fun. Yeah. So feel Hit free me. to respond quickly. <laughs> okay. All right. So the first question is, if you could go back in time and talk to grad student Takaki, what single piece of advice would you give? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should leave that one for last. That always happens. I know, always right? Go, oh, man. <laughs> this is a fun question part. Anyway, go ahead. Well, if I, had a, if I had a really good piece of advice, I would be giving that to my students. And, yeah, I would love to learn that. <laughs> well, maybe one thing, enjoy. enjoy. Enjoy graduate school. You know, getting out in five years and seven years, they don't make a huge difference in your career. But mm-hmm. don't feel rushed. Enjoy. It's a great piece of advice. Um, <laughs> All right, so uh, next question. So I hear that your lab has two special members, Mochi and Grill. Grill is apparently single. Um, who are they, and do they ever have to fight for top mascot? <laughs> <laughs> so Mochi is the, the dog that we adopted, my wife and I adopted. She's, uh, she's a mutt of uh, Boston Terrier, Chihuahua, and Pug, uh, among other things. And I would bring her to work every day. Uh, she would hang out on the balcony until my wife started working at home. So uh, now she stays at home. She's, <laughs> she's probably the mascot of the lab. Uh, and we have a grill on the balcony. We have a nice balcony uh, in my building. And we uh, had lab and building barbecues. Mm. Sounds nice. Uh, do you have a favorite baseball team? I've been trying to root for the Padres, and it's been a challenge. <laughs> Why has it been challenging? They're not very good. Uh, okay. <laughs> very standard reason. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a huge baseball person, so this is going to be clumsy. But um, we're actually doing this interview in October, but you're actually not going to come here and speak until December. So for fun, we want to know which team you predict is going to win the MLB World Series, and we'll see if your pr- prediction is correct by the time of the airing of this interview. Kansas City Royals. Kansas City Royals. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll hold you to it. Okay. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Komiyama. Thank you. It's been fun. And thank you all for listening. Since this episode, Professor Komiyama's lab has come out with two exciting new papers, both out in the August 2015 issue of Nature Neuro. Hope we've enticed you to check them out. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Louis Jiang, Erica Senor, Mark Catalina, and myself, Amy. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our show, Brains and Burger, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, and we meet you.